Hello, and welcome to AJC Passport, brought to you by AJC, the diplomatic arm of the Jewish community. Each week, we'll chat with experts from around the world to help you better understand the week's headlines and what they all mean for Israel and the Jewish people. I'm your host, Sefi Kogan. Is it inevitable that the Gaza Strip will be perpetually poor, perpetually war-torn, perpetually governed by terrorists? Or is there another path forward? That's the question that Elon Goldenberg and his team of scholars from the Center for a New American Security and the Brookings Institution set out to answer. Is it possible for a conspiracy of care to come together made up of the U.S., Arab states, the Palestinian Authority, and yes, even Israel, in order to bring stability and reconstruction to Gaza. The group's report dropped this week, and we're going to take a look at it with Elon. Elon Goldenberg is a senior fellow at the Center for a New American Security and director of CNAS's Middle East Security Program. Prior to coming to CNAS, he held senior roles at the State Department and as a staffer for the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. Elon, thank you so much for joining us. Great to be here. Now, I want to start at the most basic level. Why does reconstructing Gaza matter? So, look, here's sort of the the bottom line. You know, for the last 12 years, we've had a situation where um, Gaza has been on the verge of a total collapse. Um, At least it has gotten to the verge of a total collapse uh, right on top of Israel's border. So, you know, Israel has succeeded really beyond any of its founders' wildest dreams at this point. Um, You know, you have an Israeli economy with the GDP per capita of almost $40,000 per person. Um, I mean, it's a totally developed, functioning country. And Gaza's economy has a GDP per capita of one-twentieth of that. And so you look at a situation like that, like, like, how are you ever going to have a situation where Gaza is stable and Israel can live with some kind of peace and security as long as that's the case? Um, you just can't ignore this problem forever. It's going to explode in your face as it has been time after time. Is there anywhere else in the world where that kind of GDP per capita discrepancy exists in such uh, close quarters? No, really not that I can imagine. Um, I mean, the amazing thing about Gaza is it's actually even half the size um, of GDP in Gaza that there is in the West Bank, and it should be different. I mean, Gaza's right on the water. Yeah. If Gaza's economy was open, you can imagine it functioning. You know, Shimon Peres used to talk about turning Gaza into Singapore. Yeah. And, you know, that seems like a massive stretch right now. But just think about that for a moment. You're talking about a, a small area that's right on the Mediterranean, that's right in between, you know, Asia and Europe. It should be an incredibly successful place if it was actually open to the world and it didn't have the political and security challenges that it faces. Um, and would be such a boon for Israel in a scenario like that. Um, but we're nowhere near that. We're not even talking about that in our report. We're just talking about trying to address the very basic terrible situation that we're in. So our listeners here at AJC Passport start from a pro-Israel starting point. So I'm wondering, Elon, can you make the case that the proper pro-Israel thing to do is to work to stabilize Gaza? Yeah, absolutely. Look, we've had this, what we've had going on in Gaza now for the past 12 years is a vicious cycle, um, where basically Hamas uses violence to both build support at home and also put pressure on Israel. 
Israel, with Egypt's support, responds with an economic blockade to squeeze Gaza. Situation explodes. The international community rushes in, you know, negotiates a calm for calm sort of peace deal, right? Everybody stop fighting. Maybe a little bit of economic benefit for Hamas. But nobody, nothing really changes. We just go back to the same thing, and then we start fighting again and again. Meanwhile, you have you know a million Israelis who were just sitting in shelters for a few days just a couple weeks ago uh, when you had one of these crises erupt. So we're just going to keep having this crisis again and again and again. And Israeli, it's not good for Israeli civilians, especially those who live in the south. Uh, it's not good for the farmers and the people who live right on Gaza's border. It's not good for the most Gazans and Palestinians who just want to, most of them just want to live in peace and have an opportunity, you know, um, have an opportunity to grow up in a situation where where they have hope and, a, and an economic opportunity. So I think it, it's it's if we just stay in this cycle, it's just the the, the real losers in this cycle are. Um, Palestinian civilians and Israeli civilians. And so this is where the interest is in trying to somehow break it. Let's turn now to the plan itself, because I'd love to hear a little bit from you about it. It calls for the U.S. to go after two specific policy goals. What are those and how did you settle on them? Sure. Let me just start by, can I pull back for one second and just tell you a little bit about what we did in terms of putting this task force together and the American approach to all this, which is basically, look, for now, basically since 2007, you know, I served in government and worked on these issues. The American approach has been, we're going to work out a deal between Israel and the PLO. We're going to figure out the West Bank thing. Once we have a two-state solution, this Gaza thing will just work itself out. Hamas will have no choice but to go along. Um, and so that hasn't happened, and that's not quite frankly happening anytime soon. And that has been a major failure of American policy. We haven't even looked at Gaza. So before we even get to like what we should do, I think part of this has been it's time for the U.S. to seriously approach the Gaza situation. It doesn't mean we don't focus on the two-state solution and on trying to get an agreement between Israelis and the Palestinians, but it does mean we can't ignore that problem. And so what we did is we put together this task force. Um, it's myself and, and Hattie Ammer and Natan Sachs from the Brookings Institution, myself from CNAS. We're the primary writers, but we had a task force of 30 people and experts, including a number of former U.S. ambassadors to Israel, former special envoys, uh, other American ambassadors to other parts of the region, such as Egypt. Um, and so the whole idea was, as the United States, we have to take a serious look at this problem. And if we care about Israel's security and our relationship with them, and we care about a two-state solution, we can't just keep ignoring this thing that's hanging out there and nobody's focused on. And so that was really the major innovation of this report comes from the fact that we actually, this I believe this is the most serious look a group of Americans have taken it Gaza really since Hamas took over in 2007 to try to answer the tough questions. Mm-hmm. So that's maybe the pullback. I can talk now if you want about key objectives and what we actually concluded. Yeah, please. Sure. So, you know, we sort of came to really two primary objectives, the things we have to do at the same time. One, stabilize the current situation. Really, what we have is a crisis, a humanitarian crisis, uh, and that part needs to end. Uh, we need to do everything we can. You know, the people of Gaza have, you know, only 3% of the water in Gaza is actually suitable for drinking. For months, they were only having four hours of electricity a day. Now, recently, they've gone up to eight hours of electricity a day. These basic humanitarian stuff uh, that needs to be taken care of. And separate from that, we also need to look for a political solution that somehow brings the West Bank and Gaza back together. 
uh, and reintegrates them. Now, the, the problem has always been how do you balance between these two, right? Because any aid that you bring into Gaza uh, is going to inevitably help Hamas and take some of the political pressure off of Hamas. Uh, and so how do you balance, right? Traditionally, at least the last 10 years, the American approach has been, well, we're just going to squeeze Hamas until it breaks. Um, but that hasn't worked. And actually, the Israelis have walked away from that and gotten more, much more practical about letting humanitarian aid into Gaza and, and helping Gaza develop economically. And so what they're getting more practical, certainly we should get more practical. And so we argue you've got to do both of these things at the same time, stabilization and trying to get to political reintegration. But you can't just put all of your eggs in the reintegration basket and try to squeeze Hamas till it breaks without doing stabilization. And you can't just do stabilization without looking for the politics. You have to find a way to try and do both at the same time. Now, it occurs to me that this plan is very obviously less than a peace deal. That's not what you and your team set out to do. And it's actually also, I think, more than just the bare necessities of stabilizing Gaza. What it really looks like to me is actually kind of like a Palestinian state-building plan. Is there some element of that to it? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's, it's look, I, I would say there's two things. The short-term stabilization stuff really is humanitarian stability, you know, get at all these things, um, water, electricity, freedom of movement. Um, then on the political side, it's really about a long-term framework, right? Like, we don't think we can necessarily get there today. You might need different Palestinian leadership. You might need different Israeli leadership. You might need different um, American leadership, frankly. Um, it's possible. Maybe you can do it with the current leaders. You might. It might only be in a crisis situation when you have a major conflict that all the parties stare down the barrel of, like, what happens if Israel actually has to reoccupy Gaza? What a terrible outcome that would be for everyone, that you finally get moves. And so what we do in the report is we have the immediate economic, and then we have a long-term political framework that – Everybody can start getting behind now, that you can start socializing with all the parties, that you can get the international community behind um, to start doing that. Um, and we sort of argue that, you know, the, it's almost like there's two political deals that need to be had. One is, you know, on a two-state solution, and a separate one is on how to sort of reintegrate Gaza and the West Bank. And if you can make progress, they're both so hard, you should just work at both of them. And if you can make progress on one, wonderful. Um, you, it's not like you have to do this before you do that. Um, but you're never going to have a viable Palestinian state unless it's actually, it actually includes both Gaza and the West Bank and is reunited in some way. So laying out a framework for that I do think is really important. Now, this plan relies on a lot of actors who don't like each other, right? So Qatar and Saudi Arabia are both seen as like playing outside supporting roles. They're at each other's throats perpetually. The U.S. administration has been somewhat callous toward the Palestinians. The Palestinian Authority has been outright hostile toward the Hamas-controlled Gaza. And, and of course, Israel is often fighting physical battles against uh, Hamas. That's an awful lot of animosity to get around. You know, How does the plan account for that? And what's the path to success despite it? Sure. Well, here, here there's sort of two pieces that I think are really important. The first is, and this is one of the other challenges of Gaza, right? There's all these different outside actors. We'll talk in a second about Israel, Hamas, and the PA. Let's start with, with and the Palestinian Authority. Let's start with the outside actors, you know, the U.S., Egypt, the U.N., um, which actually has a very important role to play with uh, Nikolai Mladenov, who's the special envoy for the U.N. And uh, a former guest on AJC Passport, who our, uh, oh, who our listeners will remember. Great. No, and he's been one of the leaders on the Gaza question. Absolutely. Um, 
So you have all these different actors. The problem is they all go in different directions. We, the U.S., want to do something positive. The Egyptians want to do something. Like the countries want to do something different. And everybody goes in different directions and ends up undermining everybody. So the first thing you got to do is actually coordinate all these different actors. How do you do that? Well, you start with the three that matter the most. This is the U.N. and Egypt, who are really the ones working on the ground, trying to get aid in, trying to negotiate political deals between Israel and Hamas, and between Hamas and the PA. And so you, you need those two. And then the U.S., which for the last few years has been like, sure, Egypt, sure, UN, go for it. You guys are great. Like, figure it out. And if you do, let us know and we'll support you. <laughs> like, that's not enough. Okay, we actually have to step up our game, you know, and we have to be, we have to co-lead with them. And we can't be the ones on the ground. We don't argue for the U.S. starting like diplomatic ties with Hamas or, or things like that. We don't argue for, for doing that. Um, we do argue that, look, what we can do, how can we help? Two ways. One, our relationship with Israel matters a lot, so we can help reassure Israel and help bringing it along in any agreement. And two, we can get all the external actors on the same page. If we come to a deal with Egypt, the UN, and the US, and then say, guys, this is the plan, we can take it to everybody else. We can go to the Qataris and we can say, the Qataris and the Egyptians really don't like each other either, right? And they're both important players. We can say to the Qataris, guys, we want your money, we want you to do this, but Egypt's in charge of the political piece here. So you have to stay out of that. The Qataris will listen to us on that precisely because they're so isolated, because there's this whole feud going on between Qatar and all the other Arab states, and they're really relying heavily on the U.S. You know, we can play that role. We can say to the Europeans, hey, guys, can you do this and that and the other things? So for us to play that role, though, it's hard to do, you know, given some of the decisions of the last few months, you know. Uh, cutting aid to the Palestinian Authority, cutting aid to UNRWA, closing the PLO mission in Washington. We have to find a way back to the table with the Palestinian Authority if we're going to play that role. And so that would mean you know, either walking some of those things back or waiting for a future administration to do this. But that's sort of step A. At least get all the well-meaning external actors on the same page and coordinated so they're no longer firing in, in, in 50 different directions, which only makes things worse. Um, then step B is how you actually come to a political deal between the parties themselves, Israel, Hamas, and uh, the PA. And there, uh, you know, we've tried two things in the past. One is we've tried, you know, a deal basically between the PA and Hamas or the Fatah, which is the party that runs the PA, you know, the political party that runs the PA and Hamas, uh, on reconciliation. But that's never worked, and neither has trying to get a long-term Israel-Hamas ceasefire, which is the other thing we've tried. And that's because these individual deals aren't possible. The only thing that is possible, in our opinion, is a three-way deal between Israel, Hamas, and the Palestinian Authority. Let me explain why. If you have you know, you want to do a deal between Fatah and Hamas on reconciliation and the two sides coming back together. Part of that is Hamas getting economic benefits, but Israel controls the blockade, so Israel has to be a party to the deal. Israel will never do a long-term deal between Hamas, but with, directly with Hamas, because that gives Hamas all this long-term legitimacy. But it would do a deal with a Palestinian delegation led by the Palestinian Authority that also includes Hamas much more likely to happen. And so you start to see, okay, you actually need all three of these actors together. Um, and then you can drive towards some kind of an agreement. And so that's what we argue for. Um, and I can sort of walk you through, if it makes sense, some of the details of that agreement. But you, you tell me if you want to go there. 
I do. And let's get there. But I'm getting caught up on the realism. What can we actually count on happening? Will the U.S. under our current administration come around to playing the kind of role that you describe? Is it possible for, you know, you, you, you talk about, you know, this kind of tripartite work with Israel, Hamas, and the PA, but mm-hmm. the plan also eventually envisions a, a national unity government, which is something that the Palestinians have kicked around numerous times in recent mm-hmm. years, but have never been able to bring themselves to accomplish. Is that possible? You know, I'm very impressed by the plan, um, mm-hmm. and, and I think it's something that, not, not that I'm the one who needs to be impressed, but I wonder, like, you know, aren't there too many ifs? So it's really complicated. I think I started by saying it's not necessarily doable today. Um, mm-hmm. So there's two parts, right? I think a lot of the economic work is possible today. I think a lot of the immediate steps we recommend are possible now like right away. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think um, this administration would be open to a number of them. You know, and we've had discussions with them. Jason Greenblatt tweeted that he had met with our group and, and, you know, was interested in our work. So, you know, we'll continue to have that conversation with them. Um, So I'm open on that first track on the stabilization. That's something that can be done relatively quickly. Um, The second track, the political track is much harder. I agree. Um, and it's going to take a lot longer and might require a different American administration to really engage on. Um, but there, our argument is start to build the framework now, even if it's going to take years to get to this deal, right? Because, because at least you can start by building international support. And even if the U.S. isn't playing a central role for a while, the Europeans, Egypt, uh, Qatar, the U.N., build consensus – Build the overall broad consensus that this three-way deal is the best framework for solving this problem and start to socialize that with the Israelis, start to socialize that with Hamas, start to socialize that with the Palestinian Authority, um, start to get greater understanding of, of what that outcome looks like so that when there is a moment and when that moment does come, you're ready. I mean, and sadly, I think the most likely moment when that comes is when there's a major fight yeah, when there's yeah. another war, you know, now, and all the parties are staring down the barrel of a gun and looking at really terrible options. And their choice will be, look, if you haven't done any of this socializing, here's what they'll do. They'll say, we just need to stop the fighting. So let's just go do what we always do. And like, let's get to a, you know, quiet for quiet. Everybody just stop shooting. And we just go back and do this all again. But if you've actually socialized these ideas and you've actually started to build a coalition around it and you've started to get everybody to understand what this looks like, uh, then in that moment of pressure, when people are facing really bad options, you're not building this thing from scratch. You're saying, here's the solution we've all been talking about. Why don't we try this? Um, that's when you, I think, really have the moment of opportunity to do this. So I agree with you. It's, it's hard. It's going to take time. Um, but you know, it is one of the big differences right now. If you look at the two-state solution, yeah, we're not looking at that anytime soon either, but at least people have a rough understanding of what that looks like. You know, like there's sort of there's understanding amongst the like this is roughly what it, what the contours of the deal will look like. We just don't have any political will to do it in the right situation. And Gaza, there isn't even an understanding of uh, how do we get out of this. Yeah. So at least if you can start to see what how you get out of it, that's the first step. And then yeah, you're right. It's 
It's tough. <laughs> I'm not. We're not. We're not selling this as a piece of cake. <laughs> you know, one of the one of the things you just mentioned about how unfortunately it may be a flare up of violence or a major war that ultimately makes the space for something like this. When we had Ambassador Dan Shapiro on a few months back at this point, one of the things we talked about is that so many people are so quick to say, uh, you know, especially nowadays, I would say especially on the left, you know, the kind of the far left, but definitely on the right as well, which kind of maybe never warmed up to the two-state solution so much. They're so quick to say, you know, the two-state solution is dead. And what one of the things that Ambassador Shapiro and I talked about was that in the early 1970s, someone might have said, like, you know, peace with Egypt is uh, is dead. That's never something that's going to happen. And, you know, all it took was a horrible war in 73, the, the Yom Kippur War. And, and then by the end of the decade, there was a peace treaty in place that has held to this day. And so, you know, obviously no one wants this to happen, but might it be that the breakthrough is not some, you know, bold diplomatic messenger who comes in with like just the right new idea, but but it might be something catastrophic. And then all of this hard diplomatic and policy work that has been done leading up to it ultimately provides the scaffolding that something positive can be built around. Exactly. Though I think it's important to note that it does, you know, you're absolutely right. You know, the the... The peace with Egypt never happens without the, the tragedy of the Yom Kippur War. But it also doesn't happen without the bold leadership of uh, Menachem Begin and Anwar Sadat. Sure. You know? So, so you know, and this is one of the challenges we have right now, frankly. I think in the Israeli-Palestinian conflict is on both sides. We don't have leaders who are, you know, bold and want to take their people to places where they're not and are willing to, to try that. You don't have Yitzhak Rabin or even Ariel Sharon or Sadat you know, any of those kinds of leaders. And, and so, um, so it, it might take, I would hope that it takes a change in leadership and different visions, but you're right. I feel like, sadly, it's much more likely, uh, that to really get to something like this would, would take another terrible conflict. Um, and, and that's where, you know, let's hope we can actually get there without having to do that. Um, but, you know, we keep seeing Israel almost almost tilting in. Um, and I will give Prime Minister Netanyahu a lot of credit for the deal he made a couple of weeks ago uh, to stay out of another conflict, yeah. recognizing that this was a no-win situation. Uh, what would another war have done for Israel other than like losing another you know, 50 or 100 troops and having a couple of thousand Palestinians killed and, and all the international pressure that would come afterwards? For what? It's like you're just in the cycle. It's not going to change. To your point about a change in leadership, yeah. in no more than six years, and perhaps uh, mm-hmm. quite a bit of a shorter timeline than that, is it is likely that the U.S., the Israeli, and the Palestinian leadership will have all turned over. Yeah, exactly. And so that's um, that's a possibility, um, and you can't bank on that. But you know, you guys just got to be ready because actually, and it's interesting in the Palestinian side too. Actually, you know, I think that. Believe it or not, Hamas is feeling more pressure and is more willing to do a political deal right now than the PA. It's the PA that's taken the hardest line in all of this. Um, but a boss who really does not – a boss just fears taking responsibility for Gaza again. I mean, it's amazing. You had Bibi Netanyahu out in the press a couple of weeks ago criticizing a boss for being too hawkish on Gaza. Um, you know, this is where we are now in 2018. Uh, but – there's a lot of people around the boss who I don't think see it that way, who see that the PA has to take more responsibility for Gaza as part of any agreement. And so he's a big problem, and he might be gone relatively soon. And in Israel, you know, I actually think that Netanyahu is ready to deal, even if you had elections and he remained prime minister. If you had a coalition 
that was more centrist, then you might have more space to do things. I think it's Bennett and Lieberman who have taken the hardest line. And so, you know, there's, there's a lot of things that can happen that can change the dynamic and create potential opportunities, hopefully short of war. Elon, let me close with one final question, which is, what can our people, what can our listeners, what can supporters of AJC, what can we do to help um, increase the chances of success of, of a plan like this? Where can pressure be applied? What's the role for you know, American Jewish advocates in, in, in sure. this question? Um, so I think the most important thing right now, and what we try to do with this report, is you know, when you're, and I know your, your, your members spend time going up on the Hill, talking to the administration, talking to American leaders. I know AJC also does a lot of international engagement with countries all over the world. Um, Trying to point out that in terms of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, the Gaza issue is an issue also. It's an important issue that people need to learn more about. We should stop treating it as purely an afterthought. Just getting policymakers, saying to policymakers, we need to be thinking about serious political solutions for Gaza. Just writing it off and saying, eh, this will take care of itself. That's not going to work. So policymakers, if they start hearing from the, you know, the American Jewish community that this Gaza problem needs a solution and it requires you, our political representatives, to have an opinion about it and to express that opinion and to have ideas and plans and to push the administration on it and to, you know, and to push various international actors on it and to encourage Israel to, to, to deal with it. Um, I think that would be – that's like maybe like the core of the most important thing that needs to happen right now because there just needs to be a fundamental paradigm shift away from Gaza is a problem that we don't really know anything about and we're going to get to a two-state agreement to – Gaza needs to have a seat at the table of discussion when the American Jewish community talks about the Israeli-Palestinian conflict and pushes its leaders on it. Elon, thank you so much for joining us. Well, it's great to be here. We are almost precisely at the midpoint between last month's midterm elections and next month's swearing in of the newly elected U.S. Congress. What better time to sit down with the director of AJC's Office of Political Outreach, Julie Raymond. Julie, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. So there's a caricature that exists out there. Maybe you're someone who, you know, only follows election news kind of in broad strokes. I think it's totally possible that you might end up with a perception that all the Democrats hate Israel and all the Republicans are white supremacists. Um, that's not right, right? It's definitely not right, but it's also probably not so far off from general views of Congress at any time, hmm. right? Congress always has a low approval rating. Yeah. People love their member of Congress and hate Congress as an institution. So at this particular point, the the paintbrush that we're painting Congress with is that all the Democrats hate Israel and all the Republicans hate people of color or anyone who doesn't look or think or act or believe like they do. Um, but I don't think that probably people are thinking of Congress generally as worse than they did maybe 10 or 20 years ago. Uh, there is a difference this particular midterm in that more people are actually paying attention. So the way you started the question of, say you're a person who doesn't really follow, I feel like that is the myth of the question, hmm. right? Not yeah. actually what are, what are the perceptions, although those are also myths, but, but 
now more than in any previous midterm, people are really watching. The voter turnout was higher than any previous midterm, at least in, you know, 100 years. And people really paid attention. AJC, for example, did a midterm election analysis for the first time ever. We'd only ever done election analyses for presidentials because the interest is that high. So while we're talking about the big strokes of things, I also sort of want to acknowledge that that bit of bright, shining light um, that is the really positive thing of these midterms. They, the time and the political environment can be somewhat anxiety-ridden for lots of people. But the good news is that civic engagement is benefiting. And what do we think of this squad that won, right? Like, what are we on? 116th Congress? Goodness, has it been 116 already? Um, <laughs> from AJC's perspective, from the Jewish community's perspective, are we generally happy with the people who are coming in? It's a really interesting mix of people, right? And there are roughly 100 new representatives coming and 10 senators. And it's really, I would say, the 100 new House reps that are phenomenally interesting. There's a ton of women, not the highest wave of women coming in, but close to it. Uh, They're really young and we sort of have been talking a lot, at least in the Jewish community, about the progressives, but there are also huge numbers of people who come from these national security backgrounds. They They worked in the State Department or the CIA or they served in the military. Um, one in five of these incoming representatives has that kind of background. Wow. And right, like that's the story that we're kind of missing, right? The story of the the progressives who have criticisms of Israel is played out constantly. It's like the drumbeat of at least the, the Jewish media recently. But I think what we're missing is this really interesting angle of one in five incoming representatives who think about national security as the issue, not only that our country is facing, but the issue that they can seek to solve through their service in Congress. And that's going to be, I think, the bigger game changer, right? These are people who, for the most part, are young, who entered public service or the military as a result of 9-11, so feel the the threat of terror very personally, and understand American global leadership in a way that could really change not just how Congress votes and the kind of foreign aid packages that we have and things like that, but also the voice that Congress asserts in the world. Do you think that people coming into Congress with national security backgrounds that having those people in Congress ultimately plays better for our areas of interest in foreign policy because, you know, a, a foreign policy neophyte might come in and be like, you know, I, I've I've heard some things that don't sound so nice about Israel, you know, so sure, I, I guess I'll kind of be skeptical about the value of U.S. foreign aid to, uh, you know, U.S. military support for Israel, whereas someone like this comes in and they understand implicitly the value of something like that. A hundred percent, because we see this every Congress, that there are people who come in who don't have foreign policy experience, right? Maybe they came from a business background and it's their first time in public service, or they've been in public service, but on a a local level where 
you know, when they think of foreign, they're thinking of the next state over uh, <laughs> rather than, than the globe around them, right? And you can actually sort of, if you put a, a microscope on specific members who come from that environment or that state of mind, you can almost watch them as they learn more. Um, this especially happens with members like that who end up with a seat on House Foreign Affairs or something like that. They come in thinking certain things about American global leadership and certain things about, you know, why are we engaged in all of this foreign aid and why are we spending, you know, they, they think that our foreign aid budget is 20% when it's 2%, you know, all of those types of myths. And you can see those ideas changing and evolving. And what often happens is that those people then become the greatest champions for American leadership or for foreign aid. So the fact that we have one in five people coming in who have already gotten to that point where they see what's going on in the universe and in, in, the, in the globe and see how America can assert productive, effective leadership, we're, we're leaps and bounds ahead of where we could be. Now, you mentioned the kind of progressive, uh, the media narrative around like this big progressive wave. There's another media narrative around the Democrats, which is that much as the Republicans have had for the past 10 years already, this infighting between their leadership and the Tea Party and those types of folks, um, the media narrative has kind of set up this impending clash between the Democratic leadership and the newcomers. Is that something that you see developing? And is it something that you think will have a bearing on our issues? Listen, things shift, right? The way Americans view our country, ourselves, the world around us changes, and there's a natural shift in those who represent us and how they perceive the world as well. That being said, the elections, especially the primaries, but elections in general, cause people to sort of stake a claim. And the moderate sort of vanilla middle of the road claim isn't necessarily the one that gets you the attention that you might need to rally voters and supporters and get your name, you know, across the finish line and win the seat. But once people are in Congress, they tend to moderate a little, not only because the election's over and they don't need to be as out there bombastic or loud or whatever the case may have been, but also because there's a lot of learning that happens when people come into Congress. And I don't say that in sort of a patronizing way that, oh, they're, they're young and they have so much to learn. But I think with all these issues, AJC's issues amongst them, but, you know, any issue facing our country, be it, you know, healthcare, infrastructure, there's so many layers and there's so much complexity that you can't help but gain a deeper level of understanding when you're immersed 24-7 in those issues um, over the course of years. You know, it, it doesn't happen overnight. It takes some time. But people sort of worry about all these incoming freshmen who have criticized Israel or whatnot. But a, a lot of them have also admitted that they have a lot to learn. And that's something that we need to believe, first off, when they say it, um, to welcome and to, to think of not necessarily as this great daunting challenge, but really as an opportunity. You know, we can be a part of this educational process because we have insight to bring. We have knowledge to, to share and we can be a piece of that texture that they're seeking as they embark on a congressional career. 
Julie, if I were to guess, I would guess that most American Jews are quite glad in the abstract about the idea of the first two Muslim women being elected to Congress. I think that Jews are by our nature pluralist. I think the idea that, you know, many of us came to this country when we had nowhere else to go speaks to Ilhan Omar, uh, one of those two Muslim women who's a, a Sudanese refugee, speaks to uh, to her experience. Unfortunately, we don't exist in the abstract. And both Ilhan Omar from Minnesota and Rashida Tlaib, who's a Palestinian-American from Michigan, they both ran saying some pretty anodyne um, things, even offering some uh, some reasons for reassurance around their stance toward the U.S.'s relationship. And now that they've been elected, uh, this is true. I mean, this is truly shocking um, that that someone would would so boldly and so quickly go back on guarantees that they made during the race. Uh, both have actually come out and said that they don't really support the U.S.-Israel relationship, and that they are both supporters of the BDS movement, the movement to boycott, divest from, and sanction the state of Israel. What are we to make of this, and what can we as advocates do about it? It's a really good question, and. I think your gut on what most American Jews would initially feel about you know these Muslim women coming into Congress is right. You know, we can't, as people who are part of a, a minority community, I think we can't but feel a little bit validated or um, reassured by the fact that there are other minorities coming in. And it's not just, you know, these two Muslim women who are coming in. There are two Native American women. There's um, the first Korean American coming into Congress for 20 years. You know, there's there's all this new diversity that's, that's coming in that's exciting and it needs to be sort of celebrated and recognized and also from an advocacy perspective, harnessed, right? Um, and I think that the reversals of position or the the recalibration of positions that Ilhan Omar and Rashida Tlaib did, uh, especially with regards to BDS, are concerning. But what we need to do as advocates is not make them red lines, right? If they said one thing one week and said another thing the next week, Let's not paint them as the worst thing to happen to Israel since Hezbollah. Let's recognize that there are new politicians trying to figure out exactly their place. And, you know, presidential campaigns have been won or lost based on allegations of flip-flopping, right? It's not the first time that people change their positions. (laughs) It's something of a staple in politics, perhaps. It is. It is. And I, I say that sort of flippantly, but I think, you know, it's something that we recognize and you know, while this particular change isn't one that we want, there are a lot of changes that we would want, right? You know, we we go in as advocates recognizing that people believe a certain thing and that it's our job as as caring, compassionate citizens who believe certain things to, to try to influence them, right? That's the way that democracy functions. So, of course, people are going to change their minds. We want them to change their minds. And, you know, maybe there's some sort of recognition here that, okay, they changed their mind in a way we didn't like now, but we can't close that door. And maybe Israel is not the best first point of conversation. 
maybe it's the second or the third or the fourth or the 12th, maybe we start talking about, from the AJC context, our Muslim Jewish Advisory Council and the work we're doing on hate crimes. Or we want to talk about immigration, or we want to talk about AJC's decades-long outreach to Arab countries in the Middle East or in the Gulf, and, and try to establish that relationship there. And there's a tendency, I think, to create these red lines, to make litmus tests. And the only people that really lose when we do that are, are us. It's the advocates, because we're closing down those opportunities instead of looking at them as context or as, as challenges. And there are plenty of people who come into Congress who don't have any view of Israel and go through all sorts of you know, roller coasters of opinions. The fact that they came in with certain opinions and changed their opinions and they're going through that roller coaster publicly is, is just something that we sort of need to recognize. And I think we need to do it with eyes wide open, ears wide open, but also a sense of empathy and, and a bit of a listening ear. Now, the only problem perhaps with that is that we're not the only ones doing the educating, right? So, for example, we just learned this week that Rashida Tlaib is talking about partnering with some organization, uh, unclear uh, who exactly, and bringing some of her fellow members and, and members-elect to the West Bank on some kind of a fact-finding mission. It's interesting because it seems to presume that the reason why members of Congress would go to Israel is to learn about the Israeli-Palestinian conflict when, you know, maybe that's a part of it. Probably a, a greater part of it would be the importance of understanding one of America's greatest allies anywhere in the world, um, which Israel is and, and which the PA just frankly, is is not. Um, you know, what are we to make of this trip? And, you know, do you think it's it's going to happen? Do you think people are going to go on it? Do you think that poses uh, any kind of a threat to our ability to help expose members of Congress to the way things actually are? It's such an interesting question because that media story of, of her deciding to go to the West Bank made the rounds. Like wildfire. Like wildfire. Like no story <laughs> that I've seen in so long. And when I saw it, I said, okay, you know, that's that's news, but this isn't news, right? <laughs> from, for people who've been following this, you'll remember like in well, 2008, 2009, when Cynthia McKinney, a then representative from Georgia, was intercepted in a boat going to Gaza as part of the, the Free Gaza movement, right? And she, she went, a number of members of Congress have gone to, to Gaza, to the West Bank. This is not, this is not a new thing. Right. This isn't some great change in trends that members of Congress want to see either Gaza or the West Bank and, and meet Palestinians. And uh, what I think is really interesting is that it's seen as a threat. Right. And ideally, we would be able to go to Rashida Tlaib and say, you know, Congresswoman elect. We respect what you want to do. Please also consider going to Israel. You know, go to Jerusalem, go to Tel Aviv proper, meet with opinion leaders, thought leaders, um, people from, from all facets of the political spectrum, and use that as a part of this fact-finding mission. If we're being truly honest, we should also, and, you know, this is more of a personal perspective, I think, than an organizational, because I don't think we've ever really talked about it in, in this way. But members of Congress go to Israel all the time and don't go to the West Bank, for example. 
AJC's Project Interchange trips always make a stop in Ramallah or elsewhere in, in the West Bank, unless there's some security reason why they can't at that particular moment. Um, but because there's a recognition that you can't understand really what's going on without seeing that, right? Without having that kind of experience. And we expect our, our members of Congress to make votes about military aid to Israel or foreign assistance for the Palestinians without ever actually seeing that. So we need to, to sort of look at this from, from both angles, right? And say, good that you're going to West Bank, go also to Jerusalem. And to those who would never set a foot in the West Bank, good that you're going to Jerusalem, take another step farther. And if we believe that, that Israel is in the right, and we do, right, because Israel has this amazing story to tell, we won't be afraid of that, right? We won't be afraid of what they'll find there. Last question, Julie. There is some legislation that AJC has been watching very closely throughout this Congress, legislation on BDS, legislation on anti-Semitism. What's the future of those bills going into 2019 and beyond? Oh, such a good question. So because of congressional procedure being what it is, anything that has not been passed by both the House and the Senate before they adjourn, um, presumably sometime around you know Christmas, before Christmas, uh, dies and has to start over again. And there are certain things that we've watched and advocated for passage in the House, and they're awaiting a vote in the Senate. And some of them, I think, will be voted on in the Senate. Um, for example, the uh, Combating European Anti-Semitism Act. I think we can probably expect a vote in the Senate on, on that bill. Um, there's a bill that we've supported also in the sort of anti-Semitism framework uh, to elevate the position of special envoy to monitor and combat anti-Semitism to the rank of ambassador. I think that that probably won't pass in the Senate before January and will have to be reconsidered. And there are always last minute efforts to if the bill itself can't be passed, to tack the language onto something else that needs to be passed. So, for example, now all of the attention is on funding bills because there's this looming government shutdown that everyone is, is seeking to avoid. Um, so the idea being that we could theoretically attach uh, Israel anti-boycott laws onto a spending package. What's interesting now is that there's a debate in the Senate about sort of which versions of these laws will be tacked. And there's concern that the more favorable version um, will not be the one that's attached to the spending bill. Um, but the House is considering attaching the more favorable to their spending bill. And so then it, it creates a whole um, congressional procedure spiral, so to speak, um, of what happens there. But it's something that we're watching closely and seeking to influence when we can. And of course, it means that there's a lot of work ahead of us as advocates around the country come January. Truly, thank you so much for joining us and guiding us through the upcoming Congress. It's my great pleasure. Now it's time for our closing segment, Good for the Jews, where each week I share one final thought about a recent development in the world and try to answer that age-old question. Is it good for the Jews? George Bush. Good for the Jews? For a long time, in certain circles, the answer was a resounding no. 
President Bush was seen as apathetic toward Israel and resentful of American Jewish lobbying efforts. But, as with many issues which may first seem to be one thing under initial scrutiny, the wide lens of history has revealed Bush to be something else entirely. Indeed, President Bush has as good of a record of saving Jewish lives as any president. As vice president to Ronald Reagan, Bush spoke at AJC's Freedom Sunday for Soviet Jews, addressing a rally of 250,000 people on the National Mall and helping to send the message to Soviet President Gorbachev to let Russian Jews emigrate to the U.S. and Israel. In 1991, when he was president, Bush played the central role in getting Ethiopia to agree to let Israel airlift more than 14,000 Jews in Operation Solomon. And Bush also convinced Syrian dictator Hafez al-Assad to lift the travel ban on Syrian Jews, which ultimately allowed around 4,500 Jews to escape the Assad regime and come to the U.S. Much has been made of President Bush's kindness and compassionate conservatism in recent days, and rightfully so. But on final examination, it's also important to note that George Bush was good for the Jews. And may his memory be a blessing. You can subscribe to AJC Passport on iTunes or on Stitcher. Follow us on SoundCloud or learn more at AJC.org passport. The views and opinions of our guests don't necessarily reflect the positions of AJC. We'd love to hear your views and opinions or your questions. You can reach us at passport at AJC.org. If you like this podcast, be sure to rate it and write a review to help more listeners find us. Thank you for listening. I'm your host, Sefi Kogan. This episode is brought to you by AJC, the American Jewish Committee. Our producer is Kukang Do. Our sound engineer is TK Broderick. Tune in next week for another episode of AJC Passport.